Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Let's pray together as we stand. Uh, Father God, it is indeed our desire that you would give us tonight uh, the very mind of Christ, uh, not our own uh, feeble and fickle minds, our minds prone to wander, but the mind of your Son who turned his face to Jerusalem, who fixed his eyes on the joy that was set before him, the joy of saving a people for himself. Uh, Father, give us a a great joy in knowing that we are his people, and we pray that as uh, you speak your word to us tonight, that we would indeed fix our eyes on him, uh, fix our eyes on the one who is the author and perfecter of our faith, and uh, to step each step from uh, this night forward, uh, following him. And we pray this for his honour. Amen. Please take a seat. And uh, please turn back in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We're going to be looking at chapter 5 verses 10 to about 6 verse 9 tonight. Together, as we continue our our journey through uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. We've been in it uh, really since uh, the turn of the new year and uh, we're, we're on the, the downhill stretch. Uh, as, we, uh, as we start to look at Ecclesiastes and as you find that uh, passage, it's uh, page, what page was it again? Page 671 of the Church Bibles. Uh, one of, uh, I don't know whether you've got favourite hymns, hymns that you love uh, to sing and when you see them on the service sheet, uh, you think, fantastic, we're singing that one tonight. Uh, I have many of those. Most, most of the great hymns, I think, are hymns that fix our eyes on our God, declare his character to us, uh, to raise our eyes above ourselves and above whatever the week has held uh, to, again, see him for all he is to us. Uh, but then every now and then you get one of the great hymns that actually does the opposite. It turns the focus on us. Uh, it zooms in on us. And one of my favourite uh, of that sort of hymn is one called Come Thou Fount. It's a hymn that tells the truth about our experience as Christians. Not necessarily the truth that we sometimes sing in songs. A lot of songs are quite victorious, aren't they? Uh, declaring all the wonderful things that we are going to do for God in the week ahead. But uh, this one's a little different. Three lines in the chorus of Come Thou Fount uh, get me every time. Three words that uh, say, Andrew, this is you. They are these three words, prone to wander, (laughs) prone to wander. Uh, That's us, isn't it? Uh, When it comes to our Christian lives, when it comes to uh, last week, as we saw at the start of chapter five, the vows that we might make for the week ahead, the the way that we're going to live for God in that week. And uh, just a few steps into the week and we find ourselves yet again prone to wander, prone to wander in my love for my God prone uh, all too easily to have other things, other loves sway my heart again and again, away from where my hope actually is, and that is to be at home with him. I get too used to this place, and I think this is my home. And so I wander around without fixing my eyes on him all too easily. But uh, this book that we've been reading together, and it is a difficult book, isn't it, as we've looked at it together both on Sundays and in small groups, is, uh, is reminding us again and again that this is not our home, uh, not by a long shot. This life under the sun, as Ecclesiastes calls uh, living on this sphere, on this planet, life under the sun, is again and again frustrating 
and futile at every turn. And because it is like that, I find uh, living in a world like this to be a, a restless experience. I'm always restless for something that seems out of my grasp. But God has designed the world to be that way. He wants us to be restless. He doesn't want us to settle here. Last week in Ecclesiastes 5 verses 1 to 7, we saw uh, the key instructions from our God, key instructions how to journey safely home to be with him, uh, to not settle here, to not stop short of where we should be, which is at home with him. It came down to two words. Do you remember it from last week? Uh, Two words in chapter 5 verse 7, fear God. That's how to live in a world like this. To live well under the sun is to fear only one thing, one thing alone, and that is your God. To stand in awe of him, not anything else that lies before you in this world. And we are to be those who live with God as big and all these other things as small. And that's what Ecclesiastes is trying to help us do. Because all too often we get it the other way around, don't we? And so chapter 5 verses 1 to 7 gave us the three instructions of how we are to stand in awe of God, how we can live a life that is centred on him and nothing else. And do you remember them if you were here last week? The first was this, watch your step. Every step you take, guard it carefully. Are you walking to him or away from him? Secondly, listen. Uh, Spend less time speaking and dreaming and planning about what sort of life you might live and instead go near to listen to your God. And then thirdly, we were to obey him, to follow him. And what I love about these instructions in the first bit of chapter 5 is that they're very simple, aren't they? They're for sheep like us, people who are prone to wander. Simple instructions. Uh, But what I also love about them is that they show that the God who speaks them knows what we're like. That he actually knows me. He knows my condition. He knows my heart. He knows how easily I wander off track. And so he speaks to direct my feet. And so God says, watch your step and listen to me. And if we have been listening as we've gone through Ecclesiastes together, we'll have heard him again and again exposing these other things that we love, these other things that misdirect our steps. One after another, he has been pulling them down, prop by prop, the things that uh, hold up our lives. He wants us to be disillusioned by them. He wants us to be dissatisfied by them. He wants us to be restless and turn away from them and back to him. And tonight I reckon he's aiming uh, his biggest shot of all. He's aiming to knock down, I think, what is the biggest prop for life under the western sun. Uh, life for countries like ours. His aim is to knock down our love, our awe of wealth. He aims to knock down the God of money. That's his aim tonight in chapters 5 and 6. A God that, uh, frankly, uh, in these recent uh, months and years, in the wake of uh, wave after wave of financial crisis, a God that is on his knees, isn't he? The God of money. A God that uh, keeps getting hit by these waves of the financial crisis and uh, stumbles around. As we watch our whole institutions, institutions that seemed uh, untouchable, too big to collapse, collapse before our eyes. As we see uh, in our own lives and in the lives of those around us, fearful uncertainty grow and grow. As governments uh, try to fix the problem, uh, the problem of uh, money by, uh, well, they do it the way a problem gambler does. Just put more money in the machine, hope it'll fix it. The God of money has fallen down. 
But here's the thing about life under the sun. Here's the strange thing about the human response when one of these things that we worship, one of these things that we think gives us security and purpose in life, when it falls down, what do we do? We don't abandon it. Uh, we rebuild it. We rebuild the God. It's, it's like the picture you get in uh, 1 Samuel 5 where you've got uh, people with this God, the God Dagon. And they put Dagon in the temple, the God that they worship, the God that they think gives them security and purpose in life. And uh, then overnight what uh, the true God, the living God does is he knocks Dagon on his face. And so the people come in the next morning and they see Dagon uh, lying face down and so they put Dagon back up. And then the next day, uh, the next night, the same thing happens. God knocks Dagon on his face and this time chops off his arms and his legs. Uh, This uh, dumb idol that they're worshipping. And yet again, they pick him up, prop him up on the, on the edge of the temple and continue to worship him. Uh, that's what our world and we all too often do with the God of money. We just keep putting him back up no matter how out of shape he looks. We pump more and more money into the sinking Greek ship or we personally, on a personal, personal note, we, uh, we ask for bigger and bigger credit limits hoping it will paper over the cracks until things get better. Or perhaps tonight, uh, for some of us uh, sitting here, we don't feel the crisis at all. Uh, Perhaps we sit here quite smugly. We've been clever with our cash. Our Dagon is intact, thank you very much. But the God who speaks to us tonight in his word, by his spirit, is an awesome God. Uh, He will not tolerate rivals. He is a jealous lover for your heart. We are to have no other gods but him, and so he arranges life under the sun such that our pursuit of other lovers will always leave us feeling frustrated because he knows our heart was never meant for such puny objects of worship. We are meant for him alone. And so listen. Listen tonight as he exposes the God of money because he knows how tragic it is to give your heart to such a miserable God. Uh, did you hear the tragedy uh, of it in 1 Timothy 6? Uh, miserable is the right word. As Paul read 1 Timothy 6, did you hear what the love of money leads to? We were told there it's a temptation and a trap, a snare. It's a foolish thing to do, we were told. It's harmful, it's ruinous, it leaves us pierced with many griefs. What a picture. To give your heart to money is like planting a seed in the ground that gives root to, we're told, all kinds of evil. And what Ecclesiastes 5 and 6 will do for us tonight is it will show us the plant that grows up from that love of money. And really we're going to see two things as we look at these chapters together. This plant, this love of money is both fruitless and poisonous. Firstly, we see how fruitless it is. Three aspects that you see in chapter 5. The first of them is this in chapter 5 verse 10. Have a look there. The love of money is fruitless because the love of money never satisfies. Such a simple verse, isn't it? 5 verse 10. Whoever loves money never has money enough. So simple. So cliched, isn't it? I mean, how many times have you heard that sort of idea from the Bible? Uh, To love money, you'll never be satisfied. It's, It's almost a broken record. Heard it so many times that perhaps we've stopped listening. Uh, We leave here tonight uh, and the big take-home message is if you love money, you'll never have enough. Heard it all before. Yawn. Uh, We grow immune. But let me ask you, why do we do that? Why don't we believe it when God says again and again, if you love money, you will never have enough? 
Now, this word spoken by our God is the God who actually knows us through and through. He knows every step we take. These are words that cut to the very heart of our affections. He knows what we chase after. And so he keeps saying the same thing. And so let me ask you, as we begin out on this tonight, looking at this together, to pray that God will get through your defences tonight, that you won't think I've heard all this before, because he intends to change us. God says, listen, and do not delay in heeding. Whoever loves wealth, verse 10, is never satisfied with his income. Never satisfied. That's the issue, isn't it, with money? It's always the cry of just a little bit more. Just a little bit. That's all I'd need to want for nothing. That's all I'd need to reach the full point, to to be able to say enough. Just a little bit, and then I'd be able to finish that project. Just, Just a little bit, and I'd be able to buy that thing. Just a little bit, and life would be easier. Just a little bit, and we could move to that place. Just a little bit more, and I'd be satisfied. Now let me ask you this, those here tonight on a salary of some sort or a wage or perhaps a grant or a pension or a commission or whatever form of remuneration comes to you, now let me ask you, what level of remuneration would be enough for you for this next year? Have you done the sums in your, in your head, in your own planning? Do you know what enough is? Do you know what that point is? Is there a line on the ledger marked enough and if you reach that point you could say, okay, no more. Now, perhaps there was a point earlier in life when you earned less than you do now. Uh, back then, uh, what you earned was enough. Uh, you have more now. Now, let me ask you, the abundance you now enjoy, would you describe it as more than enough? Now, most of us who are younger, and I count myself in that category, <laughs> will probably, not all of us, but will probably uh, earn more as life goes on. And yet, for some reason, we'll almost always feel, whatever level we get to, we'll almost always feel that we've almost made it. Just a little bit more. And beyond just income, verse 10 doesn't just speak of money. It speaks of wealth. And when it speaks of wealth, it's talking about stores. It's talking about stuff, the, the things that we fill our houses with. Now, let me ask you, would you know when your storehouse was full? How restless we are for stuff. That's a wandering heart, isn't it? And it starts so early. Uh, Just the other day, my son Finn, who is seven, uh, came home from school and he was telling me about they'd had some computer time. And I said, oh, what did you do in computer time? And he said, "Uh, I went window shopping. Window shopping. Unbelievable. Now you think about it. Uh, There's a seven-year-old boy already learning the art of window shopping. The power for us to be restless in the age of the internet is immense, isn't it? Constantly scouring, looking for the the next acquisition, the next thing that we need. Clothes, furniture, CDs, houses, just a little bit more. But God says, what's your step with wealth? While you may protest that your flotations with wealth and with stuff, it means nothing to you. God knows our hearts. And he also knows that our idols make miserable gods and they will never be enough. The line on the ledger marked enough will just keep shifting. And here's why. Do you see it there at the end of verse 10? Ecclesiastes has said it so often and it says it again. It's because these things are meaningless. They're vapour, they're gas. 
And you know how a gas works in a container. You can always just squeeze a tiny bit more in. There's always room for a, a little more gas, of course, until the thing explodes. In the end, the love of money in chapter 6, verse 7, is described as a hunger. Hungering after food that will always leave you feeling just as empty afterwards. And so Jesus says, abandon your search for enough in money and wealth. I am the bread of life, says Jesus. He who comes to me will never go hungry. There's your enough. Now here's the second picture of the fruitless nature of the love of money. Uh, Verse 11 of chapter 5. It is fruitless because the love of money will give no gain, we're told. I mean, that's one of the big questions all the way through Ecclesiastes. What's the gain? What's the profit? Surely there's gain in wealth. Makes sense, doesn't it? Or 5 verse 11, as goods increase, so do those who consume them. You can almost uh, see the picture of a lotto winner who all of a sudden has all these family and friends come out of the woodwork as soon as they're in money. But you don't have to have won the lotto to have experienced this. As wealth increases, so does the demands on that wealth. Now we do it to ourselves. And I suspect, again, it betrays just how bound we are to prosperity. Uh, If we do have an increase in income, uh, we just stretch again. Uh, stretch to the limit of what our income will afford us. It's basic economics. As money increases, so do consumers of it. As our money increases, so do the amount of bills that we line up for or the expectation of our families. Or perhaps as money increases, so does the whole industry created to look after our money. I mean, that's the irony, isn't it? Earn enough money and you have to pay someone to look after your money. So what's the gain then if, uh, if our increase in wealth is always mopped up by more consumption? What's the gain? Verse 11, you see the gain there? This is all that's left. What benefit are they to the owner except to feast their eyes on them? Now, I love this. Can you picture the scene uh, of a family? Uh, there's the dad. He says, okay, family, gather around. Look, feast your eyes on our new sofa. Just look at it. 1,200 pounds. She's a beauty. My son says, uh, what do you do with it, Dad? Ah, well, uh, you, you sit on it, son. Oh, okay, so uh, it's a bit like the one we had already, Dad. Is that right? No, 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 no. This one is scotch-guarded. Uh, this one is, uh, has extra cushions. This one is insured against nuclear bombs. <laughs> wow, Dad, that sounds amazing. So can I sit on it? Of course not. It's new. Feast your eyes on it. That's all that's left. Pretty pathetic prize, isn't it? I thought about that this week, and uh, our our latest acquisition at home for us is a mirror that goes above uh, the little fireplace we have. There's a mirror. That's like the double value, isn't it? I get to feast my eyes on the new acquisition and on myself (laughs) at the same time. God calls us to look beyond the gain of pursuing prosperity, instead to pursue the great gain of, did you hear it in 1 Timothy 6, godliness with contentment. Turning our eyes from the futile joy of wealth and instead feasting our eyes on something that is truly awe-inspiring. This is why God speaks to us. He wants you to fill your eyes with something worth feasting on and that is his glorious son, not your couch. Now listen to who he wants you to feast your eyes on. 
Feast your eyes on the glory of God in the face of Christ. Feast your eyes on the one who is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Feast your eyes on the first and the last, the bread of life, the creator, your deliverer, your everlasting God. Feast your eyes on the good shepherd, the great high priest, your brother, the holy one. Feast your eyes on the hope of glory, the judge of the living and the dead, the majestic and mighty king of kings. Feast your eyes on the one no one can compare to. Feast your eyes on the one who is full of grace and truth, who is the resurrection, the way, the truth and the life. Feast your eyes on him. That's what God says, listen to me. One third, uh, a third picture of the fruitlessness of the love of money, and that is in 5 verse 12. The love of money is fruitless because it gives no rest. 5 verse 12. The sleep of the labourer is sweet, whether he eats much or little, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. Again, it's a wonderful picture, isn't it? A a simple labourer, unencumbered by the trappings of wealth, collapsing into bed, deliciously sleepy, and drifts off to sleep. Do you know that feeling? That delicious sleepiness where you just can hardly keep your eyes open? I'm sure we know tiredness. Uh, We all feel tired, but I suspect more often than not, we're more like the man with the abundance with too much stuff whizzing around our heads and our hearts to sleep well. A bit like a sort of a man who's eaten too much and is lying in bed with indigestion. That's the rich man. How exhausting is money? The thing that we think will give us rest, the thing that we think will make us secure and and lead to the easy life is just exhausting. Consider the fall in house prices in recent months and years. How much that leads to a restless heart. How can you rest when what you've worked hard to pay off over many years is now worth less than it was five years ago? Search your heart. Why is that an issue to us? Is it not about wealth accumulation? Is it not that uh, that's become too precious to us? Why would we worry that our house is worth 10% less now than it was before? You've still got the house... So when would the value of your house be enough? Is is there some point for you? If if the market pushed the price of your house up and up and up, where you said, steady on, no more. No, it didn't go any higher. That'll do. I suspect not. You see, Timothy is right. 1 Timothy 6. It's a temptation and a trap, isn't it? How much of our identity is bound up in our equity? The higher that goes, the more valuable I am as a person, the more meaningful I am as a person. It's like this quote that uh, I read in an English newspaper describing my home city, Sydney. This is how it described the, the, the people of Sydney. When they are not working the longest hours in the developed world, they pursue perfect bodies through joyless fitness, fitness regimes or obsess about their property prices. They're always looking around anxiously in the hope that others aren't doing better. They're like the Tin Man from The Wizard of Oz. They had no idea of the point of their lives other than to get rich. Watch your step, says God. Listen. Listen to the one who says these words to you when you long for rest, for security. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. 
But not only is the love of money a fruitless tree, it's also a poisonous one. And we see that as the passage goes on, the poison that comes from the love of money. I was looking at that this week. Uh, the, the, uh, the story that came to my head was the story of two Australian explorers, Burke and Wills were their name. I, I, don't, I don't suspect they're taught uh, much about... Uh, you're not taught about Burke and Wills uh, here in uh, history. Has anyone, has anyone ever heard of Burke and Wills other than me? Fantastic. We have uh, three people over there who've heard of <laughs> the Australian heroes, Burke and Wills. Well, these two clowns decided uh, early on in Australia's history that they would try to hike from uh, the very bottom of Australia near Melbourne all the way up to the Gulf of Carpentaria. It's about 2,000 miles each way. They were going to walk it with their, with their team. And uh, they got all the way up, and they got about three-quarters of the way back when they ran out of supplies. They just missed a supply group coming through, and there they were, desperate. And uh, indigenous people were nearby and uh, they were teaching Burke and Wills how to make seed cakes out of these little seeds that you can find in the middle of the bush. But unfortunately what they failed to recognise and what the indigenous people did is that they removed from the seed the poison before they ate it. And so Burke and Wills continued to make these seed cakes not having seen them for what they were. If you don't recognise them for what they are, these seeds, they sap your body of all the energy it has. And that's what happened to Birkenwills. They died just short of the end, totally drained by these little seeds. I reckon money is the same. Ecclesiastes says you need to know what it is, otherwise it's going to kill you. It's a gift. That's all it is. You are free to enjoy it as a gift, but love it as a God that satisfies you, that it's going to give you rest, and it will destroy you. Let me give you a couple of pictures from our passage. Firstly, the love of money will bring damage, 5 verse 13. Wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner, we're told. That's what happens. You cling to wealth and it will harm you. Wealth clung to and uh, hoarded is going to cause you damage. It's, it's like the, uh, the ring in the Lord of the Rings that whoever held it close to them, it damaged them. It became so precious to them that they wouldn't let anyone else touch it. The Bible says money is just the same. Now, how easy it is to become stingy and resentful with our money, to cling to money, to grow nervous of those who would call us to give it away. I've worked hard for it. But here's the problem. You are a creature made in the image of your God, a creature made to be curved outward, to be a giver, not a hoarder. You are made to give at cost with joy, not cling in fear. You see, try to save your life, try to play safe with your money, to cling to it, you will lose it. That's what Jesus tells us. Wealth hoarded will harm its owner. Now, sometimes that's physical, isn't it? You see people who run themselves into the ground just to get that little bit more. Or a story I read about of uh, the United Kingdom's youngest lotto winner, won the lotto at age 17, uh, died age 27, absolutely exhausted by it. Or perhaps sometimes it's not a physical cost, it's the cost of family and friends. The prize of money becomes so much to you that you abandon family and friends along the way. That's the picture we saw back in Ecclesiastes 4 of the rich man utterly alone. But perhaps the greatest loss of all, and that is the relationship lost with your creator. And that's what Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 6.10. He says, the love of money has caused many to wander from the faith. Watch your step under the sun, says God. Listen 
so that you may learn to value your salvation so highly that your faith, faithfulness to God cannot be bought at any price. Uh, secondly, the love of money is a poison because it will bring deprivation. You see it there in 5 verse 14. Wealth lost through some misfortune so that uh, when he has a son, there is none left for him. We're told here that money is fickle, that can be lost. Uh, we know that. Whether it's uh, losing it through some unfortunate business venture or through economic downturn, it's a double blow, isn't it, to suffer and work hard to earn the money and then to suffer in losing it. And is that not the fuel that drives so much of our love of money? We want to be safe. We want to secure our future and we think just a little bit more and we'll be untouchable by whatever economic crisis comes. And the thing is, your God does want you to be safe. He wants you to be passionate about security, but he wants you to see that money is hopelessly insecure. God is saying in the midst of all of this economic uncertainty that we're experiencing under the sun, what is your security? Let me ask you, why are you confident about your retirement years if you've not reached them yet? Or if you are in those years now, what keeps you secure? Are you again perhaps smug tonight because you were clever with your money? Amidst all the economic chaos that's come along, you're gliding along like a swan. Well, if your security is in anything other than him, that's idolatry. And here's God's word for us who are proud about our safe place tonight. 1 Timothy 6, 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God. God has designed the frustrating vanities of life under the sun to wake us from the delusion that there is any security here other than in him. To see that all of this, even wealth, will fail us, but he will remain. And to be able to say, if all I have is him, that is enough. Because that's the path we're on anyway. Do you see it there in 5.15? The cycle of uh, economics uh, pales into insignificance compared to the cycle of our life. And we're told there, naked a man comes from his mother's womb. And as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labour that he can carry in his hand. This too is a grievous evil. As a man comes, so he departs. And what does he gain since he toils for the wind? You see, other than him, all which we love and cling to, all which we hold dear to, will be stripped from our hands by death. When death uh, pulls back the curtain on us and exposes us, a bit like the Wizard of Oz uh, in our armour of wealth, that too will be stripped from us. We leave this life naked and holding nothing, says God. And so the one who lives for money will leave grasping at thin air rather than clinging to the one who is from beyond the sun, the only one who has stared death down, who by his mighty death and resurrection has stripped even death of its evil power over us. And so well might God say, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God. The bottom line, as we move towards a close of a life lived loving money, is this. Do you see it there in 5.17? It is a life lived under the shadow of death, a life lived in darkness, a shadow that grows and grows and leads to frustration and affliction and anger. 
the love of money is a grievous tragedy. A life lived for wealth where the gift of money is loved rather than the one who gave it is tragic. Here's what happens to such a person. Now flick to chapter 6, verse 2. God, the giver of all good gifts, he gives, he keeps giving. 6, verse 2, he gives wealth, possessions, honour. That's a successful life, isn't it, in this world? Wealth, possessions, honour. So much so that we're told this man lacks nothing that his heart desires. There's the holy grail. He has enough. That's where we want to get to. But what happens? The truth is, if you love money, you don't know you've reached that point. So here's what happens to this lover of money, even the one with wealth, possessions and honour in spades. God arranges things in judgment so that he can have all of these things, but none of the joy, just restless for more. It's sort of like living life with a thick head cold where you can't taste the goodness of all the gifts around you. Anything you taste, no matter how much you have of it, is just bland and blah. Tell me this night, do you actually enjoy your wealth? Do you enjoy it? Does it make you glad? It's a gift. You could have uh, 6 verse 3, 100 children. You could live to a ripe old age. You can have all the wealth and possessions and honour you could possibly imagine but have no joy in any of it. Cling to money in hope that it will satisfy you and you will remain hungry. Cling to money in the hope of gain and you will find a nil sum. Cling to money in hope of rest and you will live exhausted and afraid. You see, the key in all of this is to see money for what it actually is. Chapter 5, 18 to 20 says it three times so that we don't miss it. It keeps saying it. It is a gift. That's all. A gift from the giver of all good gifts. How obtuse to live life loving the gift and not the giver. And so the key is to treat it for what it is. It's a gift. If you don't see that, the love of money won't just fail to deliver what we want. It will take from us the very thing that we have, life. The life God intended us to live. You'll look alive in all your activity and accumulation. You're buying and you're selling. You're living and you're breathing. But God says you're not alive. In fact, your existence is a tragedy. How tragic? Well, take this in. This is an incredibly heavy word. I wonder if you heard it as Paul read it out. Do you want to know how tragic the love of money is? 6 verse 3, I say a stillborn child is better off than you. A stillborn child is better off than the lover of money. Now there's a grievous tragedy. There will be some here tonight who know the full weight of that tragedy. Having very close friends of mine, having just recently gone through this, to see their whole life fall apart as this child is born dead. Some here will know that. The full weight of that sadness. Well, God views the lover of money as a heartbreaking creature like that. One that was fearfully and wonderfully made, crowned with glory and honour, born under the sun, showered with gifts by a good God who saw that creature then amass wealth. The creature who knew God but neither glorified him or gave thanks. A creature that took that gift and twisted it into a God and then bowed down to it. Tragic life. No satisfaction, no gain, no rest, just darkness, taking nothing from his labour that he can carry in his hand. I say, a stillborn child is better off than he. Let that word weigh heavy on you tonight, for we are very, very rich. 
And so I leave you with the only answer that God gives us. The call of chapter 5, verse 7, stand in awe of God. Guard your steps with money before him. Listen when he warns you about it, for his words lead to life. Stand in awe of him, because only when you fear him rather than money, only when you're mastered by him rather than money, the one who made you and loves you, only then when he is your reward, your rest, your great gain, can you be free. Free to hold the gift of money loosely enough to actually enjoy it. Free from the fear of not having enough. Free to use it to serve others. Free to be thankful for what you have, not what you don't have. That's the picture of the man in 5 verse 20. A man content, not forever worrying and plotting the next accumulation, not fearful of the loss of these things, but free to enjoy what he's been given. And holding it loosely enough that he knows that when the time comes when all of that is stripped from him by death, And all that remains is his saviour, that his cup still overflows. Well, let's pray together. In a moment, uh, I will pray for us. And uh, then with that announcement, we'll go into our final song. A song where we will once again uh, rededicate our hearts to be lovers of God in this world and not of anything else. But just before I pray, let me encourage you to take a moment to consider your own heart and your own steps before God when it comes to money and wealth, and then I'll pray for us, and then we'll sing together. So please take a moment to uh, reflect on what God has said. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but you, God, are my strength, the strength of my heart and my portion, my great gain forever. Amen.